This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Elise is on assignment this week. I'm Adam Levine. Steve and I are thrilled to be in Los Angeles today and welcome the legendary Rob Reiner to Words Matter. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, We're going to get to the midterms, your movies, and a lot more in a minute. But first, let's get to the news. Nearly a dozen pipe bombs have been now been discovered in what law enforcement officials describe as an attempted acts of terrorism. Also, officials have warned that the number of bombs and the intended victims could grow. Up until now, Steve has described this as a cold civil war. Rob, you've gone through this. You've seen this. Uh, you were a very young man in the in the 60s when you saw some of this. Talk to us about your thoughts, your feelings, your impressions of uh, this last week. Well, you know, that's a, that's a good way to describe it, cold civil war, but that cold civil war could become hot very quickly. And we've seen that happen. Uh, we had division in our country, as you pointed out, during the Vietnam War, and we saw rioting in the streets in Chicago in 68. So the, these kinds of outbursts, we saw students killed on campus. These kinds of things can blow up very, very quickly. And uh, I, I think, unfortunately, right now, I mean, there's been a division in this country for a long, long time. And I think that uh, Trump came into office exploiting that division, and he's exacerbated that division. And when something like this occurs, uh, a president is supposed to calm the waters, is supposed to come out and basically unify us and say, you know, we can't stand for this in, in the United States of America. And he didn't do that. And he refuses to do that because that's not who he is. And so unfortunately, we've got a situation where, as Steve points out, it's a cold war, but the president, the most important voice in the country, is stoking it and is continuing to stoke it and it could become a hot war. It's an act of terror for sure. But I also think we're underplaying the significance of this. We've not seen what we saw yesterday since the night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. This was a mass assassination attempt, and it targeted two former presidents of the United States, a former secretary of state, uh, the former chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee, a former attorney general of the United States. This is the type of sectarian violence that you see in Afghanistan, the cycle of revenge and retribution tribally between the Pashtuns. We don't see it in the United States of America. We've seen radicalized political violence in the country before. We saw it with the weathermen, for example, in the 60s and the 70s. But every person on that list has been attacked directly by Donald Trump. And this idea in the debate that there's no causality between the targeting of the terror attacks on these people, all Democrats, all important Democrats, that there's no causality between Trump's rhetoric and his incitement in creating an atmosphere where a sick person or an evil person would decide to take action against enemies of the people, enemies of the state, enemies of their tribe. It was inevitable. And anybody who sits there and says, my God, I'm surprised by this, 
has their head so far up their ass, there's not a word to describe it. And, and the reality is, when you look at the menace at the Trump rallies, the intimations towards violence, talking about body slamming and a crowd cheering that a congressman who attacks a journalist is some sort of hero, we are at the edge of an abyss in this country. And we should understand that the significance of this is that after two years of incitement, Donald Trump has brought our land to a ragged edge. And the danger is upon us. If the devices were designed to kill, they failed. If they were designed to scare and to silence reporters or politicians, they failed at that as well. We here at CNN are thankful for the sharp eyes and the quick thinking of the men and women who protect us every single day in this building and around the country and the world, and for the quick response and expertise of the New York City Police Department and all the other agencies now involved in what is a massive and ongoing investigation. Terror only works when it produces fear. We are not afraid. We are here, and we will be here tomorrow, and we'll be here the day after, and we'll be here the day after that. We have a job to do, and what someone tried to do here today, it only makes our resolve that much stronger. And CNN President Jeff Zucker, my former colleague at NBC News, said the president, and especially the White House press secretary, should understand their words matter. Thus far, they have shown no comprehension of that. And the Washington Post had a great headline on Thursday morning. Amid incendiary rhetoric, targets of Trump's words become targets of bombs. When do you see that of us falling into that abyss, Steve, Rob? I would say that we've started to fall and we are just before the moment where we could grab onto the cliff or grab onto that branch to, to reach out of it. And if we don't, uh, we're going to continue to fall. And, and then there you have it. I mean, it, you've got a president who has essentially given license to do the things that we see happening in the last few hours, few days. You cannot, uh, you know, there, there's plenty of blame. You can talk about who uh, said what and Steve Scalise and, you know, powder to the various, uh, you know, congressional offices and so on. But the president never, ever takes responsibility for his participation ever. And he's the most important voice in the country. So if he doesn't do that, it continues to give license to allow these activities to go on. And exactly to your point on Wednesday night, uh, after he'd said all the right things during the day while his handlers had him inside the White House, he got out to one of his rallies and he said the following. The media also has a responsibility to set a civil tone and to stop the endless hostility and constant negative and oftentimes false attacks and stories. Have to do it. They've got to stop. Unfortunately, he he attacks the media or any of the media when he doesn't like what they say. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It doesn't matter if if it's critical. He reacts to it. So to him, that's the media playing the role of exacerbating the situation. That's the role of the media is not to exacerbate, but the role of the media is to point out inaccuracies, to point out, uh, you know, I made a movie just recently about the 
press and, you know, Bill Moyers, who was the press secretary to Lyndon Johnson, and we quote him right at the beginning of the movie that you cannot have a, a democracy without a free and independent press. And my character in the film says, when the government says something, you only have one question. Is it true? And that's the job of the press. So when you have a president who continually lies all day long, every day about things big and small, the job of the press is to 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 hold him account and to criticize that. So when they do, he looks at that as being incendiary rhetoric. And it just... It just isn't. It's the job of the press. It's also it's also there's no causality between the two. Right. The idea that Donald Trump is an enormous tax fraud, the idea that, in fact, his father gave him four hundred million dollars or that, in fact, the North Koreans are continuing and accelerating both their ballistic missile program and their nuclear weapons program on any one of a number of issues. When this president comes in for criticism, he reacts subjectively. He is illiberal. He has a fetish for every autocrat in the world, and he has constantly assaulted the institutions in the country that defend the American idea and ideals of freedom and liberty, our constitutional republic. So when he's criticized, to Rob's point, he reacts venomously. He attacks the press. He declares them as enemies of the people. But the idea that because there's been a critical story about Donald Trump, that somebody would be instigated because of that to send bombs to two former presidents of the United States and 10 other people is nonsensical. What instigates violence is a president of the United States who makes no pretense about being the leader of the American Republic, being president of all the people, including the ones that don't support him. He is the leader of a faction, and he incites that faction. Presidents go to the country whether they're good presidents, whether they're bad presidents, short presidents or tall presidents. What they, what they try to do historically is persuade the country to a common purpose. And sometimes you get the best deal you can get, and maybe that number is 51% or 50.1%, or it's just a plurality number of 48%. But the incitement we see, when you look at the totality of the problems we have in the country. When you look at the effects of globalization, the technological displacement that's going to occur for workers over the next day, what are we going to do about it? What you see on TV is Trump and Newt Gingrich and others saying, well, the election is about Kavanaugh and Caravan. And the human suffering that's part of these thousands of people who are moving north to the United States these people are being treated like that they are a panzer division about to assault and attack America. It's made up out of thin air. The incitement is constant. It's against vulnerable minority populations. The constant allegation of conspiracy, his creation of a shared sense of victimization, positioning himself as the avenger. When you stigmatize your opponents as enemies... Ultimately, some sick person out there will say, what do you do to an enemy? You kill them. And imagine if this was successful. Imagine if yesterday, two former presidents of the United States were assassinated, a former secretary of the state, a former attorney general. Imagine this almost happened. 
that it was prevented, thank God, and you know, hats off to the to the security apparatus around around the U.S. mail that that prevented this. But this is much closer than you ever want to be to a, to a terrible event. And what does he do last night? Right? He he sticks it in there again, inciting, 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 and and the hour will come where there's a terrible consequence for this. Yes, and and you know, uh, I, I look at. You know, I I didn't agree with George W. Bush on policy and many things. But when we were attacked on 9-11, he stood up there and said, they will hear from all of us, meaning all of America is coming together. And his job at that point, because the attackers were identified as, uh, you know, of the Islamic world, the Saudis, he took it upon himself to say, basically, those are those people. Those are those attackers. That doesn't paint the entire Islamic world with that brush. And it was his job to make sure that people didn't come out of the woodwork and start uh, uh, killing Muslims in our country. Now, Muslims have suffered. There's no question about it in our country because of that. But a president does what he can to to avoid letting that happen. I can imagine this president, if something like that happened, you know, he'd say, which he did essentially during the uh, uh, during the campaign, uh, we're putting a ban on all Muslims from coming into America. And George W. Bush went and visited a mosque. Exactly. And that's the difference between a, a, a real president and somebody who only cares about himself, only cares about his his pocketbook and uh, and his self-aggrandizing. Uh, we're in a very strange place. And as Steve points out, if something really, really terrible happened, God forbid what, what this guy would do. Well, and that's the point. One of the things I was struck by was when he got up the next morning after that rally in Wisconsin and he takes to Twitter. And he says, a very big part of the anger we see today in our society is caused by the purposely false and inaccurate reporting of the mainstream media that I refer to as a fake news. And he says, it's gotten so bad and hateful that it is beyond description. Mainstream media must clean up its act, in all caps, fast. When does he go for his Reichstag moment and tries to clean it up? Well, yes. I mean, the point is, the media reacts to him. In other words, he's the president of the United States. If he puts out a policy or he puts out a tweet or whatever he does, the media will react to that. So for him to say the media is the cause of the discord is insane. That's insane. Well, it's it's obviously ludicrous. And again, it's a inappropriate comment in a country with the First Amendment. President of the United States can complain about the press. You know, I've certainly played the role of the baseball manager kicking a little dirt in the in the direction of the of the of the umpires, but I never did it in a liberal sense that prescriptively saying you can't report this, you can't report that, that there's a boundary and a lane about the criticism that can be leveled at me that beyond that, well, what he's insinuating is then you understand because of that criticism, why people would turn to violence and try to assassinate two former presidents. The, the incitement that he commits every day, turning the country against each other, this isn't a reality show where one day Meatloaf and Little John and Gary Busey can be <laughs> at each other's throats, but the next day all allies again. Back to each other's throats, back at each other's throats. Omarosa makes a guest appearance and 
breaks them up again. If you go back some years to when when Rob was coming up, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, presidents of both parties, they, they would talk to the American people about obligation, about responsibility. Uh, they would talk about the bonds that unite us as the American people. It, it's an extraordinary devolution that over the last 20 years, presidents of both parties, there's, there's no talk of obligation and responsibility on the, on the part of the American people uh, to participate in the work of, of citizenship. Campaigns have become about possibilities, but not collective possibilities, usually self-interested ones, self-interested as an individual, self-interested as a member of a group in the American firmament, the consultant slicing and dicing the electorate to make promises that that can't be delivered. But even the dysfunction that that wrought and the polarization that came from it, there's a difference between polarization and division. And so Trump stokes the division and incites it. He's not satisfied with a divided country. He wants a warring country. The entire campaign strategy because Republicans are in deep, deep trouble in the House, is trying to incite, incite his base to a fever pitch, scaring them to death about an invading army of brown people or MS-13. He talked in a rally about fighting akin to World War II, where ICE agents are liberating towns from MS-13. This is conjured and made up out of thin air. It is a lie of unspeakable dimensions. And the point is that he has assaulted objective truth in such a way that he's laid out a proposition that what is true is what the leader believes is true. What's true is what the leader says is true. And so we have a very significant portion of the country that's stoked by Trump in a billion-dollar anger industry that colludes with him in it, and you have a significant part of the country that's just completely opted out of reality. I, I want to say something about what you said, Steve, just a little earlier. And you were saying that, you know, you were not above, you know, kicking some dirt into the, you know, to the ump's face if you, you know, you didn't like what he was saying about a ruling. But the point is, what that would then inspire you to do is to figure out a way, because usually it's about a policy position or uh, some idea that you're trying to put forward. And maybe uh, there's somebody who doesn't agree with that and is very critical. And then you would take it upon yourself to say, we got to explain ourselves better. If we really believe in this position, somebody is taking, uh, uh, you know, uh, umbrage with it and it doesn't mean you you hate that person or you want to kill that person. What it means is I got to figure out a better way to explain my position so that I can win on the battlefield of, of ideas, not on the actual battlefield. Right. And, and with the press and the reporters that you're doing that with, the next time you throw a pitch, what you're looking for is a slightly larger strike zone. Right. What you're not suggesting is we're going to replace all the umpires with some of the people from our team. <laughs> yes. Right. That that yeah. goes that goes out. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, and Rob, you know, you did that great film about LBJ. 
And LBJ famously didn't like the press. He didn't think the press was fair to him. I don't think any president likes the press. What's to like? They're critical. That's their job. Their job is to hold power accountable. And so you're not supposed to like the press. What you what you want to do is be able to win your argument, to be able to put forth your argument and why you're doing what you're doing. And uh, there are going to be people agree and people disagree. And LBJ had that famous line where he said, you know, if I get up off behind this desk, and he said this in private. He did not say this publicly. If I get up from behind this desk uh, this morning and I walked across the Potomac River. We have it in the film. Right. Yeah, he said he'd say, you know, uh, the press would write uh, LBJ can't swim, you know. And so he did that privately. But yet you still had that division where people went into the streets. Now, you've seen this. What does it take? What would, when do you think that will happen? Do you think that will happen? Are we a different people now, 50 years later? Well, I, I think it, you know, the division is so wide right now that the only thing that we can do at this point, because we have to discount the president as anybody who would ever even remotely think about trying to bring the country together, what we have to do is put a check on this guy. And the only way to do that is to uh, elect Democrats into the House, hold hearings, have public hearings, and and then, uh, you know, in 2020, uh, you know, change the direction of the country and have hopefully somebody who stands for America and doesn't stand just for themselves. Let's change gears just for a minute. All right. Um, one of the things, I, you know, you, you have a lot of experience dealing with ignorant, racist, misogynistic, homophobic bigots from Queens. What do you mean? <laughs> Yeah, and, and one of them sitting in the White House, right? <laughs> no. I, I want to talk about that just a little bit. A, is a cultural phenomenon yeah. because Steve and I are both huge fans and students of the show, and you lived through this. And, you know, this was a thing where CBS was nervous about that show. Yes, they were. They, they Matter of fact, they put on a disclaimer right before we went on the air, and essentially they said, you know, this this show doesn't reflect any of the views of the management at CBS. They went on, it was a long disclaimer, essentially said, uh, don't look at this show. I mean, if you want to look at it, look at it, but uh, we'd rather you didn't. I mean, they, 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 they created as much distance as they possibly could. Warning, the program you are about to see is all in the family. It seeks to throw a humorous spotlight on our frailties, prejudices, and concerns. By making them a source of laughter, we hope to show, in a mature fashion, just how absurd they are. They even hired extra operators to staff the network switchboard. Right. For all those calls that they right. thought would come in. Now, here's the thing that happened. The calls didn't come in. Yeah, didn't Talk, come why didn't they come in? I, I think they didn't come in because, first of all, we had two sides represented. You know, you had the liberal and the, and the, and the uh, conservative, and they, they went at each other. But it was funny. And people laughed and they saw themselves, whether, you know, Steve, you talked about, uh, you know, was, uh, who was it, your uncle? No, or? It, was my, it was my grandfather. Oh, your grandfather. Eddie, Eddie Carroll. He was, yeah. a, he was a dead ringer for Carroll O'Connor. Yeah. He was a bus driver in Jersey City. But um, but you, know, you saw to, people saw themselves in those characters. And, and to me, the show was never about a racist guy from Queens. It was about a family. And it was about love. And it was that in this family where there were all sorts of disagreements and the son-in-law, but, you know, when, when Archie and Michael and I'm just were locked in the, locked in the, um, and then the cellar, right? Locked yeah. in the cellar together. Yeah. It's a Michael loved Archie and Archie loved, yeah. loved Michael. Yeah, and they were, they were a family. And I, and I think at a time of real division in the country, the show made the point 
that despite all of this and the cultural tensions and all the firsts that occurred on that show, that we were still an American family. No, I think that's right. And you know, look, for five years, as you well know, All in the Family was the number one show on television. And I was stunned by this when I read this the other day. At the show's peak, more than 60% of the American viewing public. I know. It was crazy. And, th- and think about this for a second. We were a country of about 200 million at that. We're now, I think, 325, 330, something like that. At that time... Every single week, Saturday night, 40 to 45 million people would watch the show. And there was no DVR. There was no TiVo. So if you wanted to watch it, you had to watch it when it was on. Uh, now, you, you know, if you get 10 million people to watch a show, uh, that's a big hit. And they don't watch it at the same time. They t- tape it and nobody can. But if you have 40 million people or 45 million people having a shared experience and then being able to talk about it to their friends the next day, it becomes part of the conversation and it has a major impact on the way people view things. It's very different now. It doesn't, you know, we can get more divided because we go into our little, you know, niches of what we watch. I mean, there's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things you can you can choose from. And uh, I'm as guilty as, as the next guy. I mean, I MSNBC is like wallpaper in my house, but I also flip on the Fox every once in a while to just make sure what I'm hearing over there. Yeah, I've been on with Tucker a couple of times and, and Laura Ingram and stuff. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine to do that. But, but we're so in our little world and, you know, like you say, tribalism, that you don't hear any other points of view. Here we had America discussing all this stuff the next day. But looking back through the prism of 2016 and 2018, how many of those 45, 50 million at, at some of the peak times how many of those people do you think identified with Archie Bunker and looked at him as a truth teller? I'm just curious. A, a, a lot, a lot. But the difference is we didn't kill each other over it. You know, we, we talked about it. You know, we all, Archie would say something racist and Mike would always call him on it. Or Mike would say something sexist and Gloria would call him on it. I mean, it was just out there and discussed. I mean, Norman Lear once said this, you know, his favorite play uh, was Major Barber by George Bernard Shaw. And Shaw was a known liberal. But if you saw that play and you didn't know where Shaw was politically, you'd come away not knowing whether you are in favor of guns or butter. I mean, it it, it was very evenly divided. And that's what we try to do. We wanted people to hear this is what America looks like and let's go at it and let's discuss it. Now we've got this is what America looks like. And if you don't agree with me, kill the other guy. I mean, that that's where we are now. We got a president who's basically stoking violence. Well, I, I agree. I agree completely. When you look at the coverage on this, there's this reticence, this this great reluctance to make what is the clear and obvious link. And there's this reluctance to say that after two years of someone insinuating that there's virtue in punching an opponent, that there's virtue in body slamming a journalist, stigmatizing the press as enemies of the state, enemies of the people, which is a loaded term, a Soviet term, uh, a term that used in the Soviet Union to justify the execution of enemies of the people. All of these words have meaning, and there's downrange consequences. You know, if, if you, and you don't wish ill on anybody, but if somebody smokes three packs of cigarettes a day, and then they tell you they have lung cancer, you don't 
ever think that, well, you deserve that, but there is a causality between the decision to smoke and the disease you've acquired from your choice. Trump makes a choice. We had a president once at a time of division in this country where 25 million people in the North, 9 million in the South, 5 million white, 4 million slave, 3 million men under arms, more than 600,000 killed. Per capita, one of the bloodiest wars in the history of the country, a civil war on the soil of this nation on the North American continent. What does Abraham Lincoln say to the country as that war comes to an end? What he says is, with malice towards none and charity towards all, let's bind up the wounds of the nation. The condition of the country today, there is no Gettysburg. There is no Antietam. There is no Petersburg. We are not opposing each other with armies moving through the United States of America. The divisions, such as they are, are not at 1968 levels yet, are not at 1864 levels. But they're bad enough that a president should understand who raised his hand and took an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution that the minimum requirement of that, when you look at the great seal of the United States and the motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. One people. We're all in it together. And we have a tribal chief not a commander-in-chief. We have a sectarian leader, and we're on the edge of a season of the terrible consequences of two years of the rancid rhetoric, the cruelty, the meanness, the insinuations. When he says, I'm a nationalist, he knows Uh, what that means. Corrupt, power-hungry globalists. You know what a globalist is, right? You know what a globalist is. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. And you know he knows what it means because he says the words, I'm not supposed to say that. Right. So he knows. And and, and so what he says to every person who labels themselves a white nationalist, which directly is neo-Nazi, Klansman, white power advocate, what he's saying to them and what they have known and we've seen the response to it is you are in the mainstream now. You have a legitimate place at the American table where we discuss issues. You are part of my coalition. You may not be the type of person that we want to bring home to mom and grandma, but nevertheless, you're important. Yeah, and I think that, uh, to your point, I mean, we, and I've said this before, it feels like we're fighting the last, hopefully, the last battle of the Civil War. And hopefully it won't be a bloody battle. It'll be uh, fought at the ballot box or whatever. But that's what seems to be happening now. He has sided with the uh, the the uh, secessionist. He has sided with uh, the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists and all of that. And uh, the the better angels of this country hopefully will 
emerge victorious like we did. And hopefully there won't be, you know, a presidential death, not on his part, but on a former president's, which is what happened to Lincoln as a result of his position, uh, you know, trying to unify the nation during the during the uh, Civil War. No, and your point about siding with the neo-Nazis for the first time in my life this week, I went and looked at the Daily Stormer because I wanted to see what that reaction to the word nationalist was. And this was a celebration. Now, I'm a guy from Queens, New York, Adam Levine. You're from the Bronx. When you hear globalist, when you hear yeah, that yeah, contrast, yeah. what do you think? No, no, it's it's scary. It's really scary. My my wife, uh, who's the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, her mother was in Auschwitz and lost her entire family in the Holocaust. My aunt, uh, on my uh, you know my father's side, was uh, married to, was married to my uh, uncle. She lost her entire family at Auschwitz. These are really really scary. Uh, terms when you when you hear that and uh, you know uh, hopefully uh, we, we will get past this but uh, uh, certainly our president is creating more division than than he is trying to unify and what what makes me most nervous about it is I'm 48 years old and uh, born in 1970 and which means if you were you were 20 years old jumping into Normandy. Uh, in in uh, 1944, my uncle you know, was, you were, was there. You were in 1970. You were you were younger than I am now. You were you were in your mid 40s. You know you were in the you were in the prime of your career. These events were proximate. They were a shared experience. We're in an hour in the history of the country where the men who fought in that war, the women who worked in the shipyards and and participated. The men and women who survived the death camps, they, they are at the end of long human lifespans. And so a year or so ago, the Voyager spacecraft that was launched in 1979, it, it left our solar system. It, it went into interstellar space. And in, and in the same way, when the last of that generation passes away, those events will be outside the living memory of any person on earth the greatest catastrophe in human history where 80 million people are killed on a six-year 1939 to 1945 will be something that exists only in text only on film of events that happened and so when you see across europe a regression of democracy when you see rise of authoritarians, when you see a regression of the idea of liberalism and that we should have rules-based, values-based orders, not might makes right, not that we act as a nation in our transactional interest as opposed to consistently with our idea and ideals, we're heading to a dangerous hour, to a dangerous place. When you look at the success and you have to call it a success, broadly speaking, though there have been wars and there have been unnecessary wars and there have been wars that were profound tragedies and mistaken. There was not a global conflict, but the default setting in the condition of the world is not historically peace and prosperity. The world order, our constitutional republic, they're fragile. They need tending and care. The greatness of the country is not an entitlement. It's an inheritance. And the president of the United States is our trustee to safeguard that inheritance 
for the next generation. And boy, is he doing a terrible yeah, job. But, at you it. know, I, I want to say something. I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, where we are right now and it's dire and all that. But I, I, I always try to look at the, uh, the you know, the, the, the beyond the horizon and something hopefully more positive. And that is, you know, we've been tested. This country has been tested. Certainly, you know, civil war was the worst uh, nightmare that ever happened on our soil. But democracy, and we're at 242 years right now. So, you know, the the sweet spot of any great civilization is anywhere from, you know, 250 to 300 years. So we don't know. But it is the greatest experiment in self uh, rule and in in government that there's ever been and we're being tested right now if we survive this if we're able to uh get past this you know the old adage whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger we this may be something that ultimately makes us a a more perfect union and and i have hope that 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 our institutions are strong enough and our founders were wise enough to give us the institutions that will allow us to withstand this no, I think that's right. One of my favorite of your films, which is um, American President, Michael J. Fox, um, the George Stephanopoulos-like character, yeah. uh, talks about people wanting leadership. Right. People want leadership, Mr. President. In the absence of genuine leadership, they'll listen to anyone who steps up to the microphone. They want leadership. They're so thirsty for it, they'll crawl through the desert toward a mirage, and when they discover there's no water, they'll drink the sand. Lewis... We have had presidents who were beloved, who couldn't find a coherent sentence with two hands and a flashlight. People don't drink the sand because they're thirsty. They drink the sand because they don't know the difference. It's the only place in that movie where I think that I see President Gordon Gekko for one second. That feels, feels very apt sometimes when you look at some of the supporters of the current, I mean, 62 million Americans yeah. voted for Donald Trump. Did they mistake leadership for what, you know, talk, just talk about where we are as a well, people and, and, and in that uh, scene. Listen, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, he's, you know, you got the cult of celebrity and people, you know, they, he's larger than life. They like him from television. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a uh, false view of him as being this, you know, brilliantly successful businessman. And somehow that wonderful business success is going to make them successful. There's an element of racism that is stoked that he, uh, that he, uh, uh, you know, certainly encourages. So there's a lot of reasons. And there's also a reaction, I believe, to uh, an African-American president where you have people in this country who are hanging uh, by their fingernails for uh, the idea that we can go back to somehow uh, this white uh, Protestant nation that initially was taken from the Indians, you know, but to come back to that at some point. Uh, and that's what we talk about that in the American president. And that's the way in which you win elections. You remind people of a, a time that they uh, remember. It's always with rose colored glasses. You, you, you didn't really live that, that time, but you remind them of that and say, we can get back to that except for these people over here. Those people over there are the reason why we can't have that great life that we've always cherished. So that's the playbook. It's an authoritarian playbook. And uh, Trump certainly, uh, uh, you know, he he uh, he dipped into that one in a big way. Elections are always about a choice and the country's going to have to make a choice. And, and I think that choice is fundamental to our future. 
if if you look back in history, you look back to the second worst president in American history, James Buchanan. We don't spend much time talking about Buchanan, but he's important because Buchanan begat a Lincoln. And if you look back in this moment in time, 100 years from now, maybe it will be the case that in the aftermath of this, the choice will be on the American people that we want better than this. And we'll have a leader that's a unifying leader. You, you think about this recent era of American history, and we have presidents who are narrowly elected. And you think about political leadership. One of the qualities of leadership is the capacity for restraint. To understand, though, you may have 100% of the political power. You got it with 49% of the vote or 50% of the vote. And, and therefore, maybe you ought to be open to working with the elected representatives of 49% of the country to come to reasonable accommodations. Certainly, if you win, you should get more than the people who lost as you sit in a negotiation, but it doesn't mean all or nothing. And when you do that for long enough, you create the polarization that can be exploited and exacerbated into the types of divisions we're seeing now. Now, one of the things we don't talk enough about is that on issue after issue after issue, that you see 70, 75, 77% of Americans generally agree on a pathway forward to a solution. That's commonsensical. On a number of issues. On, on, on issue after issue, right? So you sit there in our politics right now, our, our elected officials. So first off, when you live in a country where the politicians pick the voters and not the other way around, the politicians become unresponsive to the voters, So we wind up with a choice on immigration where we have baby internment camps behind door number one, and we have no immigration enforcement at all behind door number two, as if there there might not be somewhere in the middle where we could meet. And we did. We had the, you know, the gang of eight uh, or six, I guess it was the eight that put together a bipartisan bill uh, in the Senate that passed, uh, you know, overwhelmingly. And so that is a solution. There it is. We have it. And if so, we want it, if we and, want it. And so, so our politics are, are divided for sure, but not as much as you would be led to believe through the billion-dollar anger industry, which projects the incitements of a Trump into the country. And so we're in a vicious circle. We are in a plane that is spinning, and it's tough to get out of the spin. And so... When, when we think about this moment, we got to think about it, I think, on a historical plane. But we also have to understand that it can get worse and that a tragedy of epic dimension may have been very narrowly diverted this time. But how many sickos are out there watching this who think that this was a good thing to do because these people are enemies and enemies should be killed and that they look at this and the lesson they take away is, I think I can make a better explosive device. You talk about solutions and you you are rightly known as an activist, but I think and a lot of people are known as activists, but you're in a special category because you are um, a successful uh, activist. I have been successful and I've also failed. 
have done both. What a, finally, one last thing I want to ask you is, you know, we have less than a week, about around a week until uh, the midterm election. Give us your call to arms, your closing statement. You've done this on a couple of issues. You've been successful. You've changed uh, the way people have voted. What would you say to people out there who are, who are, who are looking at the choices that they face this time? Well, I would say, you know, obviously there are the issues that we all care about, health care, the environment, education, uh, immigration, all of these uh, issues that we all care about. Uh, but ultimately, we have a broken system right now. And uh, the only thing that we're the only way in which we're going to move those issues forward, whether it's infrastructure, whatever the issue is, is to have a working government. And right now the government doesn't work and the president is not being held accountable. He is on the ballot. There's no question about it. Uh, President Trump, this is a referendum on, on President Trump. So I would say if you're looking to try to begin to fix the system, because it's going to take a long time. This has been broken for a long time, and it's been exacerbated uh, and continue to be broken by this president. You, We have to elect a Democrat. And, 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 and I have a lot of Republican friends who say the same thing. We have to elect a Democratic Congress to begin the process of healing and uh, putting this uh, government back together. I think Rob's take on this is, a, well, I, I think your take on this is a little bit more ambitious than mine. I I agree wholeheartedly about an urgent necessity to elect a Democratic Congress, but there's a singular purpose for it. And the singular purpose in this hour, and it's like being stranded somewhere in the wilderness. There's 25 things you have to do. But what's the first thing you have to do? The first thing you probably have to do is find water. And, and in this analogy, because the Republican Congress has failed utterly in its responsibilities as a co-equal branch of government to assert, as they are constitutionally required to do, oversight over the executive branch, there must be a check on the power of this president. And so on election night, one of two things will happen. Trumpism will be repudiated. There will be a referendum and the American people will say, we don't like it, or it will be validated. And if it is validated, Trump will be unrestrained and Trump will act. He will fire Robert Mueller. He will fire Jeff Sessions. He will assault with greater ferocity, uh, with more confidence, the institutions that he feels are a check on his power. What we've seen thus far will become not only exacerbated, but magnified and exponentially so. And so absent a Democratic Congress, we will look back on the first two years of Trump and understand that what we got then was Trump light. And so as people head into this election, my view is it is the singularly most important midterm election yeah. in American history. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, you know, uh, Steve's been through so many election cycles and run campaigns and so on. So, you know, this is not new to him. Uh, you hear it on a, in every cycle. This is the most important election of our lifetime. We hear that all the time. This actually is. 
This actually is. And to think of it, to think at, that a midterm election is as important to me, more as important or more important than any presidential election is uh, saying something. And what we said, we both said in different ways is that this is a referendum on whether or not we have an unbridled Trump or Trump that's put in in check. That'll have to be the final word. Rob Reiner, thank you so much for joining us. That was great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. We'll be right back to talk to you about something we need more than ever in this country. Profiles and courage. Welcome to the Words Matter Library, brought to you by Audible. Today, I want to talk to you about one of the most important books in my life, It's a book that has shaped the way I think about the world and who I am as a professional and as a person. Profiles and Courage by John F. Kennedy. And thanks to our friends at Audible, a version of this amazing title is now available, narrated by Caroline Kennedy and her late brother, John F. Kennedy Jr. Profiles and Courage is the 1957 Pulitzer Prize-winning collection of short biographies describing acts of bravery and integrity by eight United States Senators. The book profiles senators who defied the opinions of their party and their constituents to do what they felt was right, and as a result, suffered severe criticism and significant losses. By way of background, I grew up in suburban New York City in the 1970s and 80s. My parents taught me the importance of history and the value of public service. Politics in our house was seen as a noble profession. From a very early age, President Kennedy loomed large in my world. One of my earliest memories was as a five-year-old when my maternal grandfather gave me a record of President Kennedy's greatest speeches. Courage was always the hallmark of the Kennedy legacy. Accepting the Democratic nomination for president in Los Angeles in 1960, then-Senator John F. Kennedy spoke to the delegates about the new frontier. It would be easier to shrink from that new frontier, to look to the safe mediocrity of the past, to be lulled by good intentions and high rhetoric, And those who prefer that course should not vote for me or the Democratic Party. But I believe that the times require imagination and courage and perseverance. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers towards that new frontier. My call is to the young in heart, regardless of age, to the stout in spirit, regardless of party, To all who respond to the scriptural call, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed. For courage, not complacency, is our need today. Leadership, not salesmanship. Let's listen to a little of Caroline Kennedy's heartfelt introduction to her father's award-winning book. My father taught us all that we are never too old or too young for public service. President Kennedy's inaugural challenge, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, summed up his own life and career and rings as true today as it did 40 years ago. To me, his commanding legacy lives in the thousands of Americans he inspired to get involved in their communities, schools, neighborhoods, the civil rights movement, and the Peace Corps. Our country was transformed by the energy and dedication of a generation. Now it is up to us to redefine that commitment for our own time. Because my father studied history and understood the complexity of courage, he understood its simple power as well. He believed that telling the stories of those who act on principle regardless of the cost 
can help inspire future generations to follow their example. Our nation needs to recognize leadership, to respect it, and to require it of our leaders. Let's listen to John F. Kennedy Jr. These are stories about that most admirable of human virtues, courage. Grace under pressure, Ernest Hemingway defined it. And these are stories of the pressures experienced by eight United States senators and the grace with which they endured them, the risks to their careers, the unpopularity of their courses, the defamation of their characters, and sometimes, but sadly only sometimes, the vindication of their reputations and their principles. Today, the challenge of political courage looms larger than ever before, for our everyday life is becoming so saturated with the tremendous powers of mass communication that any unpopular or unorthodox course arouses a storm of protests, such as John Quincy Adams under attack in 1807 could never have envisioned. Some of these men whose stories follow were right in their beliefs. Others perhaps were not. Some were ultimately vindicated by a return to popularity. Many were not. Some showed courage throughout the whole of their political lives. Others sail with the wind until the decisive moment when their conscience and events propel them into the center of the storm. Some were courageous in their unyielding devotion to absolute principles. Others were damned for advocating compromise. Whatever their differences, the American politicians whose stories are here retold shared that one heroic quality, courage. Like many of the episodes in President Kennedy's book, we face turbulent and trying times in this country. Now more than ever, we need to find modern-day examples of profiles and courage. And here is a special offer for our listeners. Go to audible.com slash words matter and start a 30-day free trial, and you can get Profiles and Courage by John F. Kennedy for free. That's audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500. Audible, because words matter. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.